That's quite a, a prayer we just sang. I, I choose to lose my life, Lord, and find it in you. We sang that over and over, but I hope uh, we're thinking about what we're saying as we, as we pray that, as we sing that. We certainly need God's help if that's going to be true, and uh, we need God to speak to us and strengthen us. And so we look forward to that today, and uh, to help us get ready, we're going to read uh, Psalm chapter 86, Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me, a band of Ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, O oh Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let's pray. Father, we want to humble ourselves before you. You are the creator of the universe. You are the purpose of the universe. You are the judge of the universe. You are the king of the universe. You have absolutely no equal. Who else can speak and a world comes into being? There's no one. Who else has no beginning and no end? No one. Who else has no needs? No one. You never need to be instructed. You never grow tired. You never change. You never are confused. Your knowledge is far above ours. You know things we don't know. You understand things we could never understand. You know us better than we know ourselves. Heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool. It's like you even have to stoop down to look at what's happening in this universe. We bring out our most important and most powerful people and they are like grasshoppers before you. There's no one who intimidates you. There's no one who has power over you. Your dominion is an everlasting dominion and your kingdom endures from generation to generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are accounted as nothing in comparison to you. There is absolutely nothing that we can give to you that you need. You are the one who made absolutely everything. Everywhere we look, everything we see, it all belongs to you, owned by God. And yet you say, oh God, to this one you will look, to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at your word. You are 
a God who is great and mighty and awesome, and you are a God who comes close to the humble and to the brokenhearted. You pursue us. You want us to enjoy a relationship with you. We look back and see you made a, a perfect world for us. We didn't want to submit to your rule. We wanted and chose to rebel against your authority. And yet you came and you made a promise that you would send someone to rescue us. The whole world gathered together to shake their fist at you. And yet you came and made a promise to bring blessing through a descendant of Abraham. The people you chose and rescued hardened their hearts and went their own way. And yet you came and made a promise to send a Messiah who would bring forgiveness of sins, a change our hearts and overcome death in our place. We cry out with the psalmist, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Remember his wonders, which he has done, because you, O oh God, are a God who keeps your promises. You've told us what you were gonna do, then you did it. We are here today because not only did you say you would send a Messiah, you did, and what a Messiah. What a savior, what a shocking and wonderful proof of your great love and concern for us. Because we couldn't save ourselves, God. You came to do what we could not. Jesus, although you existed in the form of God, you did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied yourself, not stopping to be God, but adding, taking the form of a bondservant, adding human nature, coming truly and fully man so you could die in our place and be our substitute. Lord, this is good news and we're here to celebrate it. People get excited about all kinds of things that are not that exciting, new clothes, new cars, new homes, sports, movies, music. But God, we're asking that today you would help us to be amazed by what is truly amazing, that you would love us like this. We pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened so that we would know what is the hope of our calling, what are the riches of the glory of the treasure that we have in Christ, and what is the surpassing greatness of your power towards us who believe. Use your word to put Jesus on display. Soften hard hearts, encourage the discouraged, rebuke those who are stuck in sin, save those who don't know you, act, O oh God, and make us a church that is happy in Jesus. Make us a church that knows the gospel with our minds, loves the Savior with our hearts, and demonstrates the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel with our lives and the way in which we relate to one another and the world around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Psalm 86, but you already know that. Pastor Joshua just read that for us, so you have a great start for this morning. Have you ever looked back with longing at better days? Maybe days that overall you look back and they were happier days. Maybe days of physical health. Perhaps you look back fondly on your youth. There were maybe days in the past when you looked forward with optimism at what job you might have or what your marriage might be like or what your children would become or even at church, the things you had hoped for. Maybe you can look back fondly on days when being a parent was simpler, maybe your marriage sweeter. Perhaps you are feeling like that now, this morning. You look around, and in your life, there's just a lot of heaviness. Maybe sadness, discouragement, trouble. And you long for how things used to be. The third book of the Psalms was compiled to reflect a time of loss and longing. Now, you may remember reading as you read through the Psalms that occasionally you say you come to a break in the Psalms. That's the end of book one or book two. 
But this morning we're going to be in book three of the Psalms. Now these books of the Psalms are broadly organized around themes. And Psalms 80, Psalm 86 is located near the end of that third book. That includes Psalms 73 to 89. And if you read through this third book of the Psalms, 73 to 89, even quickly, you'll see a theme that there's longing for better times. It's compiled after the exile when Israel uh, was forced to leave the promised land because of their sin. So the editor of this book of Psalms brings together Psalms that deals with, with Israel's stubborn rebellion and the subsequent destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. Themes of feeling abandoned by God, of watching the wicked prosper. And so those are some of the themes. But there's also a picture in that psalm repeated of, of a just, victorious, and unstoppable God, a promise-keeping God. There are prayers for Israel's repentance and restoration. There's longings to be worshiping in the temple again. There's pleas for God to glorify himself. And there's an anticipation that a descendant of David is going to reign again. That's just a little bit of what so, that third book of the Psalms is about. The third book of Psalms is kind of like walking through, this is a sad picture, your burned down family home. Okay? Imagine your house, it's burned down, and you're walking through it. And you can imagine being crushed, I hope none of you have felt that, but crushed by the devastation. It's a lifetime of memories reduced to ashes. But as you walk through the house, you, you find a couple things. Uncinched. You find your favorite, uh, one of your favorite family photo albums. You also find, as you walk through this devastation, and then some insurance paperwork. Now, as you pick up the family album, you look through it and you weep at what was lost. Right? You have all these memories of what was. As you look at that insurance paperwork, though, you're encouraged because what was lost is going to be rebuilt. This background of loss and longing and anticipation brings us today to Psalm 86 because that's kind of the background that Psalm 86 has chosen to be in this third book of Psalms. And so what we're going to look at this, this morning is, is how we go through distress when we're stuck between looking back at what was, but also we have optimism about the certainty of what will be. And we're going through distress now. How we go through when we're stuck now with things as they are, even though you know that God could have them different. Now, Psalm 86 is the only psalm of David in this section of psalms. And that kind of helps us think about it. So then, why did the editor of this book of psalms intentionally include this one psalm of David in this book of psalms? And this psalm of David teaches us how to pray in our ongoing distress. It teaches us how to pray in our ongoing distress. And, 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 if I, and as I read the psalm, it's different from some of the other distressed psalms. You know, because this psalm, I think, is, as I read it and compare it to other psalms, it gives the feel that it's targeted for you after the initial shock right? After you are in the worst danger, after you hear the really bad news, and, and, and initially, by God's grace, and this is God working in your life, you cry out to him, why? Or you cry out to God, how could you let this happen? Or you cry out to God, but you love me, God. Or God, I'm yours, I'm faithful. Or God, please help me. And some of those are the initial cries we, we scream out to God when bad things happen to us. Now, those kinds of prayers are an act of God's grace, and, 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 and they are nothing to, to, to dismiss or make light of. That's God working in your life. And there are lots of psalms that are just like that, that, that guttural, just crying out, God, please help. I'm trying to keep my eyes on you. I think that Psalm 86, it, it does some of that, but it, it's a perfect psalm for kind of like after the initial shock after the initial panic, when things aren't changing, 
and when you are deep in distress. Maybe when you're still sick, still lonely, still in danger, still unemployed, still in debt, still in grief over the shame that you went through, over what was done to you, still looking back at what was, or still dreaming about what could have been. See, this is a psalm to help us persevere when distress doesn't go away. As I meditate on it, Psalm 86 is, is less a panic psalm. It's not a, a drowning in my holding on to whatever I can kind of psalm. Those kinds of psalms are great. This is more of a, I have too far to swim psalm. I've been swimming so long already. I can't do it anymore. It's a, I'm so tired of swimming psalm. So why can't I be back at the shore? By, God, by God's grace, this psalm will help you please God while under distress. You might be in that distress now. It may not be all of your life. It may be in a portion of your life. If you're not in that distress now, you've been. And if you're not in distress now, you will be. So we need to learn how to please God and pray while we're in the midst of our distress. We'll see what at, is the center of David's heart in this psalm. It's not just getting through the distress. It's not just the distress ending. It's pleasing God in the midst of distress. So Psalm 86 exemplifies for us how to pray to God and please him in our distress. And it's, it's, it's a simple focus this morning. How to praise God, how to please God, it should be focused, simple, right? How to pray God, how to pray to God and please him in our distress. How to pray to God and please him in our distress. And so we're going to see five ways to pray to God and please him in our distress. Now, I say it's simple. It's hard. And, you, and as you start reading through it, you're going to see, whoa, this takes some adjustment to do this. This is going to take some heart wrangling here. But God is gracious, and he gives us help through his spirit. So the first way is in your distress, go to God. So if kids are keeping count, uh, we, the, 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 the younger kids, we're going to be looking at at the word uh, distress this morning. And if you're keeping count of that word, you, you, you can come up to my wife and, and uh, get candy. For those of you who are older and taking notes in your bulletin, there's some blanks, and you can just write in there some of these words, like in orange, in your distress, go to God. And th that's the first way. And it's not hard really there, right? We probably all knew that. We need to go to God. But really, we all know that in our distress, it can be very hard to go to God. In fact, it may be easiest in the initial shock, right? We call out in prayer. But it may become harder as the distress continues over time. So David models for us six ways that we are to go to God. Now, these, these, these are kind of key words. And in ways I say that none of them are, are, are perfect. And I kept kind of like trying to find one that just, that just encapsulated each of these verses in, in, in one word. So we're, we're just going to try. The first way to go to God is go to God needy. Go to God needy. We see that in verse one. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. David doesn't demand an entrance into God's court because he's king. He doesn't kind of strut in there and say, hey, the king's here. Instead, David begs God to bend his ear to David because David is poor and needy. He's, he's one of the afflicted. He's one of the oppressed. David comes into God's presence like a hungry immigrant, nothing to boast in, with no demands, just looking for help. David doesn't attempt to barter with God. He doesn't remind God of how much David has done for him. He's poor and needy. He's poor in spirit, as Jesus talks, says. And yet David does pray because David knows that God's heart is for the afflicted and needy. So he can say, for I am poor and needy. And this is good news because that's who you help, God. You delight in helping the poor and needy. And that's how we're to go to God. We're to go to God needy. We're to go to God needy. And second, we're to go to him, him committed. We see that in verse two. We're to go to God needy and we're to go to him committed. It says in verse two, preserve my life for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. And that word godly might sound like, well, there he's boasting. You said he didn't boast and now he's saying like, look at me, I'm so godly. 
but that word godly there, uh, it, it's a neat word. It has its, its root in being in a covenant relationship with God. He's saying, God, I'm committed to you. I'm loyal to you. You are my God, he says. I am your servant. I'm in this relationship with you. I belong to you. He's not arguing on the basis of his achievement, but on his identity. I'm a servant. I need you. He is in a servant-master relationship with God. This is a relationship that he's committed to and that God is committed to. So this is David living under God's lordship here. He's not seeking an out because of his distress. He's still trusting, and he's committed. He's committed. So he goes to God needy. He goes to God committed. And three, in verse three, he goes to God persistent, persistent. And, and I chose that word persistent because of the end of this. I cry all the day. It's not just a, a one-time prayer here. Psalm 86, verse three, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. As David waits for God to reveal this grace, this, this undeserved favor, as he waits for God to act in his behalf, David just doesn't cry out once and then turn to his own resources. Now I've got to go fix this. He continues to cry out all the day. This is like the, the friend pounding on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night in, in, in Luke 11 as Pastor Joshua is teaching us to pray from there. Right? It's going persistent. This is not a prayer of duty. This is not just, yeah, well, I'm going to begin my day with a prayer because I need help. This is persistence. And David knows who can help. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. I'm going to you. I'm going to stay here, Lord. Please help me. You can see that David is making intentional choices to be needy, to be committed, to be persistent. And in verse 4, we see he's going to God expectant. Expectant, and I love how he starts verse four, gladden the soul of your servant. I don't feel glad right now, God. I need joy. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Help me to smile again. I, as Pastor Josh prayed, I want to be happy in Jesus. Please help me. David wants God to act in his favor for this burden to be lifted, for the distress to be over, so that he can again rejoice. But that doesn't mean he's going to wait to rejoice until the distress is over. He goes. Now he wants joy, but he's not going to take shortcuts to some cheap substitute. He keeps offering himself to God. He says, your servant, glad in the soul of your servant. I'm here. I'm needy. I need help. Please bring the joy of your presence to me again, Lord. And he lifts his soul in confidence, expecting that God is going to bring this joy to his heart. So he keeps lifting up his soul. He's not lifting up his soul to another. He's not saying, well, this is kind of miserable. I guess it's time to turn on some Netflix. He's saying, gladden the soul of your servant because I'm crying to you, Lord. You can see the amount of, of, of insistence and persistence that it takes to go to God this way, to go to him needy and committed and persistent and expectant, but also re, re, remembering too, remembering or, or meditating. And there's, I almost use the word disciplined here because we're going to see what, where he focuses his attention in verse 5. He, this is the why David cries, the why he calls, the why he waits, the why he lifts up his soul. Verse 5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. He remembers what is true about God, maybe even if he's not feeling it's true. He goes to God's word, to how God revealed himself on Mount Sinai to Moses. Listen to Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7, when God reveals his glory to Moses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. All of who God is, he proclaims. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David remembers, and we'll see Exodus 34 is all through this psalm. So he goes to God remembering. He goes to God because he remembers who God is. God is good. 
God is forgiving. God is generously and faithfully loving those who call on him. And he is not stingy with his heart, but open-hearted. So he goes to God remembering, he, he plants his nose in scripture, he, he unrolls the scroll and he's like, I've got to look at what God says. And he does it so he remembers in his distress the heart of God toward him. Like some of you, he has, well, you know, post-it notes on the dashboard of his chariot, right? He, he, has, he has scripture-filled note cards because he has to remember what God is like in his distress. It's hard work to go to God, to go to God needy and committed and persistent and expectant and remembering. And also, I think verses 6 to 7 can be summed up as confident. He goes to God confident in verses 6 and 7. David brings a summary of this request to God in verses 6 and 7. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the days of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. And so he kind of summarizes where this first five verses are going. He calls out to God, it is the day of my trouble. And he needs grace, and God is gracious, so he knows where to go. And God listens to those who call on him. In this prayer of David, David takes time to think of how he's going to God. It's not only help, although, especially as soon as you are, are surprised by bad news, that's a great prayer. We need to keep praying that. But in this day of trouble, David wrangles with his heart and he wrestles with his thoughts to reflect on what is true. He wants to see himself as he is and to hope on God as he is. So he goes needy and committed and persistent and hopeful and disciplined and, or remembering and confident. And as you go to God in your day of trouble, how do you go to him? How do you go to God in your day of trouble, especially after that initial, help me God? Do you start over time thinking that you're worthy of being treated better? Or do you keep going needy? Do you become tired of being a servant? It's hard to obey him. You start toying with treacherous thoughts. Maybe, may, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a way that's a little easier, a way that requires a little less, I don't know, obedience, being all in. Or do you stay committed? Over time, do you self-reliantly forget to pray? Spend all your energies trying to solve your own problems? Or do you stay persistent, crying to him all day? Are you waiting for him to gladden your soul, or do you start looking for happiness in the next? You know, in the next meal out, the next vacation, the next purchase? What have you been remembering? Have you been, re, re, have you been clinging to who Yahweh is, to who God is, to a God whose steadfast love never ceases, whose mercies are new every morning? Or have you started repeating maybe the rumors of some lies to yourself, starting to doubt God's character? You start repeating to yourself things like, oh, God's just out to get me. Or God's kind of capricious. I can never expect what he's going to do. I can never plan on it. Maybe I've sinned so much against him, he's vindictive. Or do you go to God remembering how God has made himself known? Brothers and sisters, will you wait in the day of trouble, confident that your gracious God will listen and answer? See, God's children, we enter into God's presence. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you go into his presence blameless. You are covered by the blood of Christ. You have him interceding on your behalf. And that should make us bold to go to the throne of grace, but not, but not nonchalant. Not, not, not forgetting who we are, not, not proud. We're not to go into God's presence like a child throwing a temper tantrum because we're not getting what we want. We're not to go into his presence like an athlete who refuses to go to training camp because he doesn't like his contract. I'm, I'm kind of tired of going to God. Because he hasn't given me what I want. He hasn't treated me the way that I deserve. So I'm just going to kind of sit here and nurse my wounds and my distress. See, this is such a choice David makes in these first seven verses. 
to go to God. That's the first way we would go to God. We're to go to, to go to God in our distress. And as we go to God in our distress, we should hope only in God. And that's the second way, to hope only in God. And um, I felt it as Joshua read this this morning. You know, you can see that David is intentionally bringing his eyes off of himself in his distress, and he's looking up, right? And the God that he sees there is a big and awesome and glorious God. David went to God. He reminded himself of God's character. Now, verses 8 to 10, uh, David hopes only God. He, he asserts that there is only one God to go to, and that God wins. That God is the victorious God. Listen to Psalm 86, verse 8. There is none like you, uh, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. David rejoices in God's incomparable greatness. God is unique, and in God's works, whether they are his works of creation, and his work of redemption, and his works done in covenant faithfulness, God's works are incomparable. The gods of the nations are literally a fiction compared to God, right? It's not even like, well, there's lots of gods and this is the chief God, right? They are nothing. There is only one God, and that is who David is going to. And that God is going to be worshipped by all the nations. This gets big here. Psalm 86, verses 9 and 10. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. It's why I'm only going to go to you, God, because you are the only God to go to, and all the nations with their false gods are going to come to you too. It's thrilling to see God's, to see David's confidence in God's future exaltation in this earth. And that's exactly what we are in this age of while Jesus reigns in heaven, waiting for him to return is what is going on in the earth right now. Throughout the world, we see the nations coming to worship God as we, the saints, his people, obey his command to make disciples and to proclaim the good news of God's greatest and most wonderful work that he reconciles sinners to himself through his son. So right now, what, what David looks forward to, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. Christ is resurrected and exalted, and that is what is going on right now. And that is why we send out missionaries and that is why we seek to be missionaries and that is why we want to be faithful in our witness to our neighbors because that is what God is doing in the world right now. This is why we go to him because he is being exalted. We are the nations coming to worship before him. That, that is God's work of grace already, but there are more to join. See, our gospel work and this worship is going to continue until Jesus the Lord is universally submitted to. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, and, and we sang about it with, with, with that he is worthy, gives some of this beautiful picture. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, that's, and I believe that's the name Yahweh, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the God we bring our prayers to in our distress. David exalts God alone because there is no one else worthy of worship. There is no one else for us to go to. David refuses to go and offer sacrifices to the gods of the nations. Sadly, Solomon didn't. Right? I don't know if that was just Solomon trying to get favor with his wives or more favor for things to keep going well. What was going on in Solomon's heart when he offers to the gods of the nations? But David refuses. No, I'm only going to go to God because only God will be glorified. You can see that his hope is only in God. So in your distress, what is your hope? In your distress, what is your hope? Is it that wonderful picture of the only God being worshipped by the nations? What's your hope for a treatment in sickness? What's a hope? Is your hope a promotion in financial difficulty? In your depression, is your hope a weakened getaway? In your loneliness, is your hope a friend or a spouse? 
when you're shamed, is your hope and future vindication, all those things can be good things, but horrible hopes. See, when we place our hope in them, they just become other gods. There's only one God. So in your distress, will you hope for other gods to relieve you? Will you compromise? Will you bring a sacrifice to them to try to get you to feel better? Or will you direct your hope only to God? We know who wins, saints. We know who the victor is. We know who the king is. We know who the nations are going to bow down to. Hope in God alone and forsake all other hopes. There's no one like God. I love how David lifts his eyes up and pronounces God's victory, the nations coming to worship God. In our distress, we need to go to God. We need to hope only in God. We also need to pray to please God. In your distress, pray to please God. See, in verse 11, verse 11 is the center of this psalm, and it's kind of a surprising center. If, if, if this psalm has, has kind of two sides, the, this, the, the peak of the psalm is verse 11. It's, it, it's, it's the pinpoint of, the, of these parallel themes. It begins on the outside with, with David's distress. It begins with a, then it kind of moves inward with a high view exalting God. And here's the pinnacle in verse 11. This is, this is what matters most to David in the day of his trouble. Verse 11, David asks God, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In your distress, pray to please God. Now, when David prays, teach me your way, O Lord. God's way isn't like a treasure hunt where, 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 you, where you decipher the clue or, or, or scavenger hunt where you decipher the clue and then you go and get the next clue. And like, okay, I, I got to find God's way here. And uh, I made it this far, so now I got to go find the next clue of what God wants next. You're, you're just kind of waiting for, for, for an envelope with God's mysterious will in it. God's way and his truth is what God has revealed about himself and about how we please God in this world. It's what God has revealed. God's way is the truth of who God is united to the commands that God gives. That's what God's way is. That's, that's what David's praying. Teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me what you want from me, O Lord, and remind me of your character. I want these two things joined in my heart, who God is and what he commands of me. David wants to obey God's commands while submitted to a sovereign rule. So he asks for help. David expands that request in verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. God's name is the totality of who God is. It is everything about him. It's all of his attributes together, all of his glory. He says, unite my heart to fear his name, to fear your name. To fear God means to have an awe of God that leaves us shocked. It's, it's, it's when our eyes are open and we see him for all that he is, as big as he is, and all of a sudden we become very, very small. Not insignificant to him, but very small. Some of you may remember seeing the movie uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And if uh, you haven't uh, seen that, it's an, ex an experiment gone wrong. These kids are shrunk very, very, very small. Okay? Like, like, like smaller than ants. The, the ants are big and terrifying to them. I think that's a useful picture of what it means to fear God. When we fail to fear God, we think of ourselves maybe not as God's equals, but kind of like as kids next to a parent. Or maybe little kids. But now imagine yourself shrunk to smaller than an ant size standing next to me. But as you're shrunk, and here with our picture of God is that he has us lovingly in his hand. And that's what it is to be hidden in Christ, right? to be lovingly in his hand. We're not afraid of his fingers going to come down and smash us. But we do see, whoa, he's so big, but he's so good. And he's so powerful, and he's so wise. 
Look how big God's brain is. He knows everything. He's completely unlike us. He knows what he's going to do for all eternity. That's just maybe a bad little picture of what it is to fear God. We're, we're so small in his hand, but he's so good. We fail to fear God in our distress when we complain or when we lie or when we lust or when we despair. David prays for a unified heart that, that fears God, and that unity is without compromise, without hypocrisy. It, it, it's a heart that has God as its unrivaled center. If you can imagine your heart, a pie chart, some of, for some of you that'll be exciting, you know, a pie chart where there's a little slice, you know, a, a, a heart that is, is, is full of a fear of God, a unified heart is 100% God, not 70% God and 30% you. Right? It's, it's not like, well, I've got a little wedge for myself still. And, that's, and that, that's like we prayed in that song. Ourselves totally beginning, belonging to him. God, I want all of my fear to be you. To fear God is to live in a way that is appropriate to God. Appropriate to his presence without any detours as we long to be on his way, as he teaches us his way as his truth, without any detours of distrust or disloyalty or going and trying to do things on our own. In his day of trouble, the core of David's prayer is God's pleasure. He wants to live in a way that, that matches up with God's awe-inspiring presence. See, a prayer for rescue, it really can become a self-centered prayer. It's not that God doesn't want our heart, but we have, we, we just, it is good to say, well, why do I want this? What is it that I'm really wanting? But in this prayer, in the center of the psalm, we see David's center and what he longs for his center to be. David's center in his day of trouble is God. Pleasing him is the main thing. And this is hard, saints. We can't do this when our eyes are full of me, when, our, when we have all that self-pity and we're just kind of licking our wounds. It's kind of like standing in front of a mountain and we can't see the mountain because we've got a mirror in front of our face. And that, that's, that's what we do sometimes. We're so obsessed with our feelings and, 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 and what we deserve and, and what we want, that we can't see how beautiful the mountain is. It's just a picture. But when our eyes are, are full of him and when he is doing what David's praying for, teach me your way, Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. When our eyes are full of him, we can, we can pray to please him in our distress. When walking in his ways, when fearing his name are the main thing, this amazing thing happens to our heart. We're going to see it happen to David here. Our hearts are thankful. Our hearts are free to overflow in thankfulness towards God. And that's where David goes next. In your distress, thank God. So in our distress, we need to go to God. In our distress, we need to hope only in God. In our distress, we need to pray to please God. In our distress, we need to thank God. Psalm 86, verse 12, it's such a sweet turn here. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. See, David prayed for a unified heart, and now that unified heart is unified in giving thanks. He says, with my whole heart, this is what I wanted, Lord. I wanted to fear you, and now I'm giving thanks to you with my whole heart. David has wrestled his heart by remembering God and praying to him out of complaining and out of believing he deserves better. There's no grumbling left at this moment, at least. Of course, he probably struggled with this again. There's no grumbling left in his distress. There's, there's no insubordinate shaking of his fist. His thankful heart is then matched by a commitment to keep glorifying God. I'm giving thanks to you with my whole heart, and I'm going to do that. I will glorify your name forever, he says. In verse 12, I'm going to keep glorifying you. To glorify God is to, it's, it's, it's to affirm his value and to testify to his worth. It's to announce him as big as he really is. 
And the opposite of glorifying God is to minimize him, to dismiss him, to critique him, to rebel against him, even to shame him by being disloyal to him or to bring shame to him. See, David doesn't wait for that distress to end to think and glorify God. Right there in the David's trouble, he glorifies God while still in the day of trouble. And verse 13 explains why. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David gives thanks to God, David glorifies God because of what God revealed to Moses about what God is like. And that's what David has seen in his life that God has rescued him again and again. He praises God because of God's steadfast love, his loyal love, his covenant-keeping love, his loving kindness. God had given evidence of that love to David in delivering him from death as God's king that he had put on God's earth. So many enemies, David's seen the proof, the proof of God's love time after time. But today, saints, we have an even greater evidence of God's steadfast love. A greater deliverance, a greater deliverance from the depths of Sheol. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Moses' God didn't spare his son for us. God reveals that covenant-keeping love in the sacrifice of his son. If he's done that, he's going to graciously give us all things that we need so we can give him thanks and we can glorify him with our whole hearts. How liberating. In the middle of your distress, in the day of your trouble, will you thank God wholeheartedly and to keep wrestling with your heart until it is wholehearted? Will you give thanks to him for his steadfast covenant-keeping love? See, don't wait to see how God is going to act. We're going to see that David is still crying out for help here, but he doesn't wait. In the midst of distress, he thanks God. We have more certain evidence of God's steadfast love than David had seen, right? We know God the Son become man. We know Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We've seen the God, the kindness of God to us in Christ Jesus, right? How, how, we have no greater need to see God's kindness displayed. We look back, and I think that that's what a lot of the New Testament does. It looks back at Christ. We have all. We have to repent, and it's gonna, that tendency is going to keep coming back to grumble, to distrust God, because he hasn't given us what we want, when we want it. We need to instead choose to give thanks to him, to glorify him, that he's given us this eternal deliverance and this new covenant sealed with the blood of Jesus. And, and, and that thankfulness for us, can only happen when we are believing God's gospel to us, when we believe that good news to us. When you believe that good news, when, when that gospel is at the center of your heart, we are liberated to give thanks to him with a whole heart, to glorify his name forever. When, 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 when that's in our heart, what freedom we have to glorify God, but we got to believe that. In David's distress, we see him go to God, and we ought to. We see him hope only in God, a big God. We see him pray to please God. That's at the very center of the psalm. We see him thank God. Now we see him bring his reasoned request to God. He brings a reasoned request to God. David is committed to please God. He's full of thankfulness, and as such, he humbly brings this reasoned request why he thinks that God answering his prayer would be in accordance with God's will. Because he wants to please the Lord, and as he prays, and as he thinks and meditates, and we're going to see his meditation on the wickedness, as he meditates on God's character, he's going to bring this reasoned request saying, God, I, I believe this is how you should act for your glory. 
So first, in verse 14, David presents the character of these men. He says, oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. And we don't know the the specifics here of what brought David to pray or which band of ruthless men these were, but he shows the heart of these men, that these are insolent, arrogant men, that they are ruthless, they are violent, that these are terror-inducing men. They're cruel. And here's the worst thing. They They don't set you before them, is what David prays. You're you're not in their hearts, God. They're they're people without an interest in you. They have no allegiance to you. They are without God and without God's restraints, and they are contrary to God, David reasons. And then in verse 15, David turns from the danger to God. He says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, we see Exodus 34 and how God revealed himself to Moses coming out in this psalm. God, David knows what God's like. God's merciful and David needs mercy. David doesn't deserve God's favor, but God's gracious. David is often disobeyed. He knows it, but the Lord is slow to anger. He's forgiving. God's abundant love is intensely loyal to those who are in a covenant relationship with him as David is. God's faithful. He speaks truth and he acts truth. So David trusts him. He said, God, because of all that you are in bringing this request to you, I know you, God, and I know these men. And in your glory is at stake here. So because of who God is and how wicked his enemies are, David makes the request of verses 16 and 17. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Rescue, God. Again, he emphasizes, he reminds himself, he goes to God humble. I'm your servant. I'm the son of your servant. There's no haughty demands. This is not for his personal pleasure. He says, give your strength. God, act out your strength. Use your omnipotence for my good, but this is for your glory. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. This is verse 17, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So David here is praying for rescue. He wants this to be a visible rescue, though. He wants God to reveal the favor that he has for David. He wants God to reveal his grace. So he reasons that, 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 that this obvious act of rescue will exalt God for his help and comfort and shame those who are opposed to God. And this really is tied to David's unique place as the king of God's nation. What happened to David was really all about God's glory. His prayer is anchored in his desire for God's fame, for God to rescue his loyal subject, to defeat his enemies. It's not just about his distress. This prayer is about God on display. Now, we face different kinds of distress most often than David did. But we can have the same kind of thoughtfulness in our distress, especially after we have that initial shock, that initial panic, that initial cry, help me, God, right? He's he's, he's really thinking about this. And when we pray in our day of trouble, we should bring a reasoned request to God. We're his servants. We're eager to see God exalted our greatest desires for his glory, and we thank God that this is how you can be glorified. So we can bring our request to him, and he wants to hear them. So in your distress, in your day of trouble, why do you pray for what you pray for? We may be praying for health and sickness, for vindication and shame, for justice and persecution, for resources and need, for joy and sadness, But how do we reason with God in our prayers? All those things are fine to pray for, but why are we praying them? Do our prayers culminate in God's glory? God, we want you to make yourself known. As we ask God to rescue us, do we we pray because you are merciful and gracious, Lord? Because your hand is kind. We're your servants to do what you will with, Lord. We need your help. Or have our prayers 
kind of gone rogue. They become kind of attempts to wrestle from God what we want when really our heart has kind of forgotten God. You know, I find that sometimes, I, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, when, when, when you pray for something, it's so, in, it's so good and instinctive for our heart to go up to, to our Father and say, oh Lord, please help me, or maybe, or maybe you're looking for something. Please help me find this. I'm like, wait, but, but why am I asking that? Is, is that about him? Is that about knowing him? Is that about loving him? And, and, and I don't want us to worry, in a sense, like too much. God wants to hear our hearts. But in these, in these times of, of trouble, as we're wrestling our hearts, as we're wrestling with the Lord, as, as, as we're bringing ourselves in submission to him, as we're remembering his character, as we're saying, I'm your servant, Lord, are we praying for him to be glorified? The Lord may choose to grant our request. Sometimes he doesn't. See, but the act of, of bringing that request in this reasoned way is, is seeking to walk in his truth. It's seeking to fear his name with a united heart in the midst of our distress. That is what we are doing as we bring this reason request. We're like, oh God, I know that you're so big and wonderful and powerful, so I'm praying this, but Lord, your will be done. We're bringing a reason request, but remembering to fear him and to walk in his truth. Now David ends this, this, this psalm, show me a sign of your favor. And, and, and David in his life as king in Israel, it's really about God's glory being displayed right then in real time, right? He's saying, show me a favor. I want everyone to know that you are God and that I'm your servant. But I'm thinking about that. I don't know that the New Testament prayers pray that way. Brothers and sisters, in our distress, I'm going to say, I don't, we don't need to ask a sign of God's favor. We don't need to ask a sign of God's favor because he has already shown all of his favor for all time in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Listen how God shows his favor to his people. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this New Testament age, we don't need to ask for a sign of your favor, God. We have it. It is Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We have another sign of his favor. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses to pay for the punishment of our sins, but he was raised for our justification. He was raised so that we can be certain that we have been declared righteous, that we are right with God, that there's no punishment left. The sign of God's favor toward us. The certainty of the end of our distress, that these days of trouble are going to be very short. Our vindication before God's enemies is the cross, and it is the empty tomb. Romans 8, 38 to 39 says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and we can add whatever happens in our day of trouble, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God has been poured out to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know we have his favor in the day of our trouble. Saints, you who are in Christ Jesus, you who have fled to Christ for refuge, who have been given new life in his son, you have certainty of God's favor. You have known his help and comfort because the father of Jesus Christ is your eternal father. So now in your day of trouble, certain of God's favor, Let's pray with David the prayer that's at the center of this psalm and whatever trouble you're going through this day. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us your word. I thank you that we are able to think about it on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb to know Christ exalted, to know just such an amazing display of your goodwill towards us who are in Christ. And yet, Lord, we are aware that we still have days of trouble. So, Father, in the midst of our days of trouble, help us to go to you in an appropriate way 
to bring appropriate reason requests to you for your glory to be known, for you to make yourself known. Help us to go to you with a big view of you, with hearts that are full of thankfulness to you, to not bring any offerings to any other gods because there is no one else who can help us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that as we are going through our day of trouble, Lord, that, the, that our heartbeat would be that we would fear you and that we would walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.